Hello, and welcome to Back in Control Radio with Dr. David Hanscom. Hi, everyone. This is uh, David Hanscom with another episode of Back in Control Radio. I'd like to introduce a friend of mine, John Lehman. He's an attorney in Spokane, Washington, who has been doing litigation for many years. He and John, John and I have become close friends. We ski together. We discuss life together. We, I've learned a lot about litigation from his perspective. And as a surgeon, why there's an instinctiveness, there's an instinctive shine away from litigation in general, because the literature is quite full of articles that document that litigation has an unfavorable effect on outcomes. And as we mentioned on, the, on last week's podcast is that one of the reasons that happens is that when you're under stress, it changes your body's chemistry and you have real physical symptoms created from this change in the body's chemistry. So John is going to talk to us from his perspective about the effect litigation has on people, observations he's made of people who have not done very well with it, people that have been successful, and his general advice on what to do. So I'd like to introduce John Lehman. And John, could you tell us a little bit about where you practice and what type of practice you do? Thank you, David. Well, I have an office in Spokane and Seattle and we have a litigation practice. We uh, represent uh, people who've had something tragic happen to them through no fault of their own, and we try to help them get their lives back in order. Um, I have uh, a practice that involves uh, work with traumatic brain injury, which I've done for many years, and then complex spine injuries, um, and then to the more mundane, what people would call a whiplash uh, type injury, uh, my background is a little different than some in that I've been involved in banking also, and I'm still on the bank board for a public bank. It's a good regional bank, banner bank in the region. So in some scenarios, I'd be much more conservative than a lot of plaintiff's lawyers. Um, but I truly believe that people that have been injured and have had their lives changed uh, need to have zealous, zealous advocates for them and that they're entitled to be fairly compensated. And correct me if I'm wrong, but for many people in situations, the only thing you can do to deal with the problem is litigation, correct? Well, that's true. I mean, if, if, uh, I mean, if you think insurance companies have a heart or a conscience, um, I haven't seen that insurance company. <laughs> I mean, they're trying to return shareholder value, and that's paying out the minimum amount that they can and delay. And right. that's what they do, and attack the credibility of the person that's injured in any way they can. And that's what I tell people as soon as I, I become involved with them. Credibility is everything. And so I don't care what it is, we can deal with it, but we cannot have you lose your credibility. Because once you've lost your credibility, uh, you're going to be, uh, your compensation is going to be significantly reduced. Right. And you're right. The insurance companies, even from a medical perspective, the insurance companies are ruthless. They'll assassinate physicians' reputations and judgments and their testimonies as much as they can. They'll pull up things in the past about some, maybe some complication you had, et cetera. So no, the insurance companies are pretty ruthless. And unfortunately there's people involved in the middle of this whole process of exchanging money between, you know, different institutions and insurance companies. But we get stuck in the middle as, as physicians, providers, attorneys, and, and, and clients. But anyway, I wanted to get your perspective on my general advice to patients who involve litigation is, you know, pursue, pursue the litigation, understand the stress behind it. And I know I don't say this lightly, but, you know, one of the keys to success in life in general is detaching from the outcome. And that's hard to do. 
as you know, in sports, by just skiing your run and let the run take care of itself, not worry about winning or losing, the chances of succeeding are much higher. You know, I have the same advice for people in litigation. Say, look, pursue litigation. You have to do this, but don't get yourself emotionally involved. And I well, realize- that's clear. I mean, you, you look at Michaela Schifrin, who just won the world championships, and then that's the exact message she gives. She says, I can't worry about if I'm going to set the record. I can't worry about if I'm going to set, you know, when she won the fourth world championship that never been done before. She can't, I can't deal with that. Or it's overwhelming to me. The anxiety is too great. I have to focus on simply how well am I turning? How well am I skiing? And on the basics and the rest will take care of itself. And, and I think in litigation uh, with clients, when we get involved, we talk about credibility. We have to also talk about the long-term outcomes and we have to talk about, this litigation cannot be your life. You have to be able to move forward. And sometimes it becomes a, a new self-awareness because when someone's injured profoundly and then they, I mean, they, be, they can't do the things they used to do. Probably one of the hardest things for, for someone is a low back injury for a guy who's been big and strong and most of his life's been based upon how strong he is. And he's lost that. He loses his self-esteem. And so the self-actualization has to change. Right. And until he can change and do that, they're going to be depressed. They're going to have chronic pain. And I think it's something that as lawyers, we need to work with and the healthcare providers to get them to move forward with their life, try to get back to be retrained, get back to work, be social. One of the worst things that can happen is that people withdraw. You want them to be social. You want them to be involved, whether it's support groups or otherwise. They've got to make steps, even baby steps. And then a jury... Or, or, or people who are deciding a case, they want to help people that are helping themselves. But the case is over. They then have a life. They have, right. they're, they're going to be successful and be able to move forward. So it's a real challenge, Dave. But a lot of people I see feel there's a sense that when I get this lawsuit done, my life will be better or I can move on. And what we're both saying is, is exactly the opposite. Just live your life and let the lawsuit do what it's going to do. But it's, it's not easy. And I think from my perspective that most people I see involved litigation are attached to the outcome. It does seem to consume their life and they're, they're pretty darn angry. And unfortunately, again, that changes increased physical symptoms, including increased nerve conduction and increased pain. So what, what have, give me some examples, just overview of what percent of your clients seem to be pretty consumed by the lawsuit and its outcome. In other words, it has a significant impact on their lives. What's their strategies that have not worked very well versus people seem to cope quite well and just move on? What are the, some of the general principles that people employ that um, seem to move on compared to those who don't? Well, I think that if it becomes a total consuming thing in their life, it's difficult for them. Now, in a catastrophic case, it's, uh, it's hard for that not to happen because sometimes that determines your life care plan and if if you're going to be institutionalized you, or, or if you're going to have some quality of life. So it depends on the, the type of case. You know, you get a profoundly brain injured person or, or quadriplegic or a case like that. I mean, the outcomes in that quality of that person's life, it could be heavily dependent upon what happens in that, in that case. But I, I think anybody, no matter who you are, if you can try and move forward with some progressive steps of value in your life, and something that you're doing to make your life worthwhile and give back to other people uh, will make you do better in the long-term outcome uh, of, of the case. If you focus just on the case like that, it's going to increase your anxiety. Uh, you cannot uh, 
I work very hard to try to make sure the clients don't uh, become a situation where they hate and want to play the blame game. They have to work towards forgiveness so they can move forward. Um, generally, the people involved didn't do it intentionally. They were negligent or reckless. Now, you have companies and things of that sort that have a pattern of behavior that needs to be changed. And you send a message and, and then your client's trying to, to help for a bigger purpose or cause. Right. That happen. But what you're saying, it's a complicated scenario. And so you have to work with them about goals and get it to move forward and then work with their healthcare providers too, so they're getting the proper advice and care so they can help them move forward. When you have uh, some of the worst and the hardest cases I've had are people who have suffered significant anxiety disorders or problems prior to be involved in a motor vehicle collision um, or and or they've got some other trauma you can you know women in their 50s going through a change of life sometimes can have a difficult time when they go through a traumatic event and psychologically too do you work with all your clients with this mindset of moving forward and not being consumed by the case you think most attorneys have that advice or do you think you're a little unusual in that regards? No, I don't, I don't sit in on everybody's uh, meetings and probably a little unusual in that regard. I mean, I try to use your book. I try to get people to write, try to get them involved in support groups if we can. I know a lot of lawyers uh, do that. Um, but you, none of us try to uh, ever advise the client if, the, if you're doing your job to uh, maximize the damages. You try to get them to mitigate, minimize the damages and mitigate to move forward because um, that's the best thing for their life. We don't know what's going to happen. But you can try any case, Dave, 10 times and get 10 different results. Really? Just don't know it's just a very uncertain process. And that's why sometimes arbitration or mediations are successful because a client, if they're properly prepared, it's the last time that they have control. They're deciding what they're going to do. Once you go to a jury, it's out of their hands. I see, but I see a lot of patients in my office, and I can't give you a percentage, but a significant percent of people who have been in situations where they've been injured, involved in litigation, and we start talking about the actual situation, it's like they're there. It's like it happened yesterday, and they're really, really attached to it. They're angry. They're frustrated. And my advice is, and I don't take this lightly, is to say, look, you know, a bad thing happened to you. This is a legitimate gripe. You've got to let it go. And to actually use that situation as an opportunity to practice forgiveness tools. Now, I realize that's a big task. It's, it's a learned skill. But for the people who actually pull that off, they do extremely well. But I'm a, so let's say a client's worked with you, you're working with them on moving forward. My observation has been that when people are angry, a lot of time that anger is part of the disease actually blocks the treatment. In other words, you have these irrational spinning thoughts. You're attached to this situation. Your life becomes consumed by the litigation and the lawsuit. It becomes somewhat your identity to win this thing or to lose this thing. I mean, your identity gets wrapped up in the whole situation. So it becomes your story. And to unwrap people from that story is not easy to do. For, the, for me or the person or even people that work with them to, to help out with that. Do you feel like you are able to redirect people most of the time? Sometimes you don't get involved in situations where they're so angry they can't really respond to what you're saying? I, I, that's an interesting question. I mean, every individual is different. 
Dave. And, and so everybody brings in a different uh, background and life experiences before they involve in some traumatic event. So I don't think you can cookie cutter anything. Right. But you uh, clearly, the earlier you start addressing those issues, the better your outcome is and, and the better that uh, the result's going to be. Um, I've had situations where people are so angry and they can't move forward from that. And they're difficult, they're difficult clients. And it's not, it's, it's hard on the lawyer and it's hard on everything. And um, I mean, sometimes it could be a tragic result in that regard uh, because uh, you, can, you can't guarantee success. If somebody is so angry that they're irrational and, and basically, as you know, I think anger is an irrational survival response. We all have it. It's not going away. The, the idea is not to let anger control any of our lives, but do you, do you decline to take patient clients on if they can't at least try to get past it? Well, you know, you sometimes you don't, if you see it that strongly when you first meet with them, uh, yes, I, I've had situations where I, 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 or I found some credibility issues that I didn't think that they're being honest with me, then I'll, I'll, I, would, I won't take them on. Um, once you're involved in the case and you observe this behavior, um, what you'll try to do is you try to get their significant others involved, you try to get some support, you try to get them to acknowledge it, and frequently I'll videotape them, and then I'll have them watch it. Frequently, right. they, don't even know, they don't even know they're doing it. Right. And they see that behavior, they know, they realize that it's, a, it's ugly behavior, and it's not healthy for them, and it's not healthy for the people they're with and their loved ones. And then they'll, then they can become more receptive to working on it, to move to the next stage. And then you need to have, this is where I think our whole system is a little bit weak is giving them the tools to, to move forward in, in that next stage. And part of it, I explained, you know, uh, a jury uh, is not going to be receptive to that, that angry face, that angry person. Um, you know, they want to see somebody who's trying to work forward to do the best they can with this hand that's been dealt them. And so you can try to get the message through in that regard too, but that's a challenging situation and it affects that person's long-term life. Well, I, I'd said this a couple times before and I'm still fascinated by it because I mean, it really is, and I'm, I don't think I'm just, I'm not speaking just for myself, but it really is a common feeling in medicine that if a patient gets better, that there's no case, that the attorneys encourage them to stay injured or stay disabled. Well, I tell people to come in, you know, people always ask, what's your case worth? What's my case? I can't tell you. Uh, okay. I mean, you're treating. I mean, hopefully the goal is going to be in three months, six months, you're going to come back in here and you're going to say, John, I don't have any more problems. My symptoms are gone. Maybe I've got some pre-existing conditions. I've had some surgery. That's the goal. That's the hope. And uh, frequently that is the situation. Um, or you're going to be in a situation where you've got a new normal and you're living with it and moving forward. Now your life's changed and we have to figure out how to explain that so that we can get you some just compensation. But, um, you know, like you said, you know, I was involved in hit by a drunk driver and have had several surgeries and I have a new normal. I mean, you know, I, I don't, still, I don't, I don't, ski, I don't still ski substantially better than you and I always will, but <laughs> I don't ski as well as your son. Well, hope springs eternal. Exactly. <laughs> Um, so the, uh, tell me about this video. I had not heard about this before. That's interesting. So wh what's the, how do you, 
do the video? What's the scenario? Do you have a script? Do you have a certain scenario that you play out with the video? What do you? Well, I just it'd be like if you're getting ready for a deposition or you're going to trial or something else. Um, if you see this anger, then I'll say, okay, that's uh, that's uh, I'm going to videotape you to take you through dry runs. And then they see this anger, they, it comes across, and then you have them watch it. And then they see it, I mean, and, and most of the time, they're not aware of really how far they're coming across, and they don't, they can see that they're actually having a physiological uh, reaction. Right. And, and then they understand that that's not healthy for them. And so then you can start to work on the next stages of you know, forgiveness and, and moving forward. Uh, but a lot of people, and, and then, and then if they have continued problems, and then I try to get them out to get some uh, some counseling or some professional help if that's if we think that will be beneficial to them. Right. You know, it's fascinating that you talk about the forgiveness from a litigator's perspective because there's quite a bit of research on anger and forgiveness. It's not a philosophical term. It's a physiological response that actually causes illness and disease. And it's not really in mainstream medicine very much about using forgiveness to actually calm down the body's chemistry and help people to heal. And it just strikes me that there should be a common set of resources developed for any situation causing chronic stress, whether it's you know medical illnesses or litigation or whatever it is. It seems like a and it's just a learned skill. I mean, it's not a, it's not hard to learn, but you have to learn it. The first step, which I think is really interesting, is becoming aware of it. As you know, I was in chronic pain myself for 15 years. And my self-assessment of me, my self-identity was wrapped up in being sort of enlightened and compassionate and whatever. And the idea of having anger to me was not even part of my reality. At the same time, I was getting 15 different physical symptoms, migraine, headaches, skin rashes, all sorts of physical symptoms. And I was angry as hell, but I wasn't connected to it. I couldn't see it. And the way I described, the way I disguised my anger was perfectionism. I was always critical of myself and hard on myself. Doesn't matter why you're angry, it's just that that physiological changes are really profound. So we talk about again litigation being one of life's stresses. Um, again I try to present that as an opportunity to practice the forgiveness tools, but this is not a religious philosophical deal. This is changing the body's physiology in order to help your body heal. And I think that's that's the key, Dave, and I, and I think you've helped me understand that over the years, and also some of the work I've done with traumatic brain injury, and you start to learn that, you know, the people's neurons and the rewiring them, and uh, how when people are at PTSD or they have long-term depression, it actually does change them physiologically, and it isn't just all in their head. Right. And, and so it is an important situation. And, 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 and as science has continued to evolve, you're able to, people are able, doctors and healthcare providers are able to document these physiological changes, you right. know, with DTIs and FMR, they didn't, couldn't do that before, but now they can. And which also helps support, I think the significance and the uh, necessity of a lot of what you're trying to accomplish. And it's, it, but the, where I think we're just in the neophyte stage is how to implement it and how to get it out there and how to, you know, lawyers like me become better advocates for our clients by being able to utilize these tools and get them access to the tools that will help them have a better recovery. But, you know, you, you made a comment earlier, which I'm thinking about a little bit about developing a resource for people in litigation to help cope with litigation stresses, et cetera, using some of the common down tools that we've just discussed. But 
I don't think that resource exists right now of, of trying to actually calm down the body's physiology in the presence of litigation. No, I don't think so. And I think it's also, you take a step further, you've done things with the health medical profession, but the legal profession needs it too. I mean, it's a stressful job in conflict constantly. Um, right. The winner and loser, you're always in conflict and that's not healthy for the, the lawyers either. Right, right. Well, I appreciate your thoughts. This is really excellent. It gives me a bit to think about a little differently, even more than I've been thinking about litigation for a while. But it's, it's fascinating to me, you know, I think 30 years ago in medical school about how litigation was only a bad word. Um, people were all, you know, all sorts of malevolent attitudes were being attributed to people in litigation. And it's really just people trying to get the right thing done moving forward the best they can. Your point on the earlier podcast was that people aren't asking to be litigation. It's not that much fun seeing attorneys or doctors. I know I'm a nice guy, but seeing me on a Thursday afternoon is not one's first choice of a good day. This is not, you know, so you're right. Seeing medical care, see, get involved in the legal system all takes away from the rest of your life. That's enjoyable. And there's not much enjoyable about litigation and seeking medical care, but um, those are really good points. So any final thoughts on to summarize what we talked about as far as people successfully coping with the stress of litigation? Well, I think a lot of it comes back to Dave's awareness and communication and uh, understanding that, you know, people don't like to be told something's in their head, um, right. but that doesn't mean it's a bad thing. And so you have to, people have to understand, okay, you have a physiological reaction because this is in your head right. and you can help yourself. We can help. There's, there's things that can be done to make you better and then recover better and to deal with these issues better. And we just have to all as professionals become more adept at recognizing them and then utilizing these things. It's in, and I think we're really at the beginning stages of that. Never mind. I do want to finish off with one other concept, which we haven't really talked about very much, but I'm trying to come up with a different term than my body syndrome or neurophysiologic disorder or whatever you want to call it. That what strikes me is that you can't feel pain without your body. In other words, you need a receptor to come into your nervous system to feel pain, but you can't feel pain without a nervous system interpret those signals. It's really just a unit response. What we've done in medicine, we separated the mind and the body, but one of the metaphors I use, if you think about an orchestra, high-level symphony orchestra, you can't really have an orchestra without a conductor, but you can't have, a, but a conductor is worthless without an orchestra. It's a unit response. But even more apropos, I think, is a Boeing 747 jet. How do you fly a Boeing 747 without a computer? Not possible. The computer just sits there without a plane or the plane sits there not being able to function without a computer. It's just a unit response. Well, the human body is infinitely more complex than a Boeing airplane. And you can't separate it out. There's 50 trillion cells in the human body. There's 80 billion nerve cells just in the brain alone. Every inch of soft tissue has 1 million pain fibers. It's just a unit response. The mind and body respond as a unit. So when you're talking about the stress, your brain's taking down all the sensor input and it's, it's changing blood flow, it's changing contractility of your gut, your bladder, everything is reacting at once. So it's always a unit response. And I understand that's really critical. So the, the argument with the pains in my head is actually makes no sense, right? I mean, you have to, you have, to have sensors to feel the pain. So it's just a unit, unit response. And I don't know, I think the medical profession has done a, a poor job of actually telling people there's something wrong that can always be fixed. 
And it's always a combination of sensory inputs interpreted as a whole of being pleasant or unpleasant that says whether the sensation is pleasant or not. Um, so I know I digress here a little bit, but it's just that all pain. But pain, David, is always comes down to the focus of, of, of lawsuits and damage. Right. I mean, and we spend a tremendous amount of money to avoid pain when you go to the dentist. Right. You pay for Novocaine. You have anesthesia. You have aspirin, headaches. We don't right. want pain. And pain, whether you say it's in your head and you have a physiological reaction or you got a cut in your arm, the pain is real to that person. Right. Exactly. And it's always there. And then our brains were constructed, you know, we can't really remember pain. Right. Because we probably go insane. Right. And so you, you, you experience it. And then what tools do we have to help us cope or redirect it or rewire it? So and I think one of the analogies in your book that was so it's interesting to me is when you use the water torture example, the drip, you know, that first 150 drips on your forehead, they don't hurt. Right. But then after a while, you're 3,000 or 10,000, and your brain's rewired, there's neurons rewired, and then it's excruciatingly torture every drop. Right. And that was, to me, profoundly helped me understand the concept we're dealing with. Right. Well, again, I appreciate your time very much. Very excellent insights, and uh, we'll, uh, we'll keep at it. So I appreciate your time. Sounds great, David. Take care. All right. Thanks. Thanks for listening today and join us next week for Back in Control Radio.